0: Is here in Alabama. I'm Beth McGinnis. This is the last episode in a series following my journey getting to know the Porch Band of Creek Indians, the only federally recognized native tribe in Alabama. We'll pick back up with the conversation my colleagues and students and I had in 2023 with Cheryl Thrower, the records coordinator for the Porch Office of Archives. Cheryl's sisters, Sahoy and Rachel, also work for the tribe in the areas of environmental protection and Creek language, respectively. As we rejoin the conversation, Cheryl is telling us what it was like to grow up as a Porch Creek Indian. I'm trying to think, going way back, I mean, I've always known I was
1: part of the community, that I was part of the tribe. That was never something that was uh, kept from me I've heard stories about where you know people won't hear about you know certain lineages or heritage and like till later but that was always something that was very out in the open and to be proud of for me so that did come with you know some prejudices during school but it was always when it happened it was always kind of like a like ugh, that person's so stupid that was always the the reaction Mm -hmm. that we would have to it. Just like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're, they're just jealous. They're not Indian, you know, like, (laughs) so that was always kind of the attitude. So I was very lucky in that way. Like, I feel like I did deal with that kind of attitude in some ways, but, um, my family, my friends and in the community, they kept it very positive. Just like, they're just jealous. Like they don't, they don't have it as good as us, you don't have like that strong community like we do. So it was always like, that was always instilled in us at a very early age. Hmm. So that's kind of my earliest feeling about it. It's like, we didn't have much. It was before the casino was built and before we had kind of made a name for ourselves. So we, I think I was the last generation where we really didn't have anything like we were very impoverished, but it was still, it still felt very rich because the communities always came together so if someone needed something you you gave it to them no one ever went hungry around here and there sometimes wasn't enough money and food to go around but everyone made sure that everyone was taken care of so so yeah it was though it always felt always felt very blessed knowing you know like i'm very lucky to be in a community like this so that in a, in a vague sense, that was my first memories, my first feelings of being within the tribe.
0: So your father was not a native speaker. was no. your grandmother? No, um, And you see that a
1: lot um, in the older generation. a lot of you know, and you you can see it in me. I pass for white because we have a strong Scottish, Irish English ancestry within us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my ancestors, including my grandmother and great grandmother, um, if you could pass for white, you said you were white mm-hmm. because otherwise you would experience prejudice. Like so a lot of the records we have about this community, people are either white or black. You you didn't even say you were Indian or Native American. It was white, black mulatto was the old mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm if you passed for white, you know, you moved on, mm-hmm. you know, just for your own safety, for your own protection. Mm-hmm. So, and as a result, a lot of people, you know, kept that heritage, kept the language to themselves. Mm-hmm. They would speak it at home, like with each other. And you never, you never spoke it or talked about practices out loud. And it was illegal for us to practice certain things for a long time. We couldn't do any stomp dancing.
0: We couldn't do any traditional get-togethers, anything like that. It was considered illegal. Stomp dancing is unique to Southeastern tribes. It predates contact between Native people and European settlers. You can learn more about stomp dancing in Episode 4 of this series. But as a result,
1: the Muskogee language within this community died out really quickly because it's just, it was a sense of preservation and safety for for everyone and now we're I feel like we're just now starting to embrace it again and have that sense of pride and I feel like in my generation it was finally coming out saying like you should be proud to be Native American like mm-hmm. you should be learning these traditional ways and be proud of it and own it so but I feel like it's like I feel like only in the past 30 40 years mm-hmm. Is when that's been happening here. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you see a lot of <laughs> cultural whiplash with people my age and younger, and then some of the elders here. Some of the elders here mm-hmm. are still very private about certain things because they just have that instilled trauma, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. still within them. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So it's it's been interesting balancing that within the community.
0: Yeah. How does the community
1: balance that? Do you think? Um, just trying to be respectful about certain elders' privacy. You know, I you try sometimes to, you know, with the oral history programs, you'll ask an elder, like, oh, like, what do you, you know, do you recall, like, a traditional recipe or something like that? And they'll say, like, well, I don't, I don't know anything about that. Uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, like, I don't remember anything about that. But then in the next sentence, they'll be talking about, you know a traditional thing they did or something like that so it's just all it's always been a matter of whenever they feel comfortable talking about it like you you be open mm-hmm. to it but but otherwise it's um you know it, it honestly it's like anytime you're talking to someone who's experienced a kind of trauma in my mind you know like you be gentle with it mm-hmm. you know you try and be respectful with it mm-hmm but be available when they do want to talk about it. So that's kind of how we're handling it right now we're trying to be. Yeah, I mean, and you may have seen some of this in the museum, but up until the 1920s, we were very much a kind of forgotten community. Like no one in the surrounding areas came here. It was like a no-go zone for a lot of people, and we kept to ourselves. Like, that's where the savages live. You don't go down Jack Springs Road kind of thing. And But as a result, no one, no one would associate with us, and that included people who had necessities, food, shelter, like any kind of supplies you needed for that kind of thing. So by the 1910s, that's when the missionaries mm-hmm. came in, and they saw we were in dire straits, like, you know, be, like starving village kind of dire straits. So then after that, it became a little bit more apparent, like we, we have to give this community attention, like they need help. And then there was a lot of, um, you know, because it, it was Christian missionaries, a lot of uh, my ancestors became converted to Christianity. And that's what you see a lot in our elders. Now there's like a, a very fierce, you, you know, uh Christianity and people, being very devout in that way. And that's kind of where it came from. It's I feel like it's a lot of elders being devout Christians, uh, you know, as almost like a thank you to the missionaries mm-hmm. who came here. Like St. Anna's Church. Like mm-hmm. it's not named after a real saint. It's named after Anna Never. the missionary, okay. you know? So it's that kind of feeling, I think. But after that, it slowly started becoming more you know more people came out of the community and into the surrounding areas and and vice versa after that point but it was still very much like like i wouldn't say the surrounding areas was a sundown town but Mm. there was definitely a like it was a known thing that people within the community here would say like be sure to be back here by sundown that was definitely a of feeling up until the late 60s, I would say. And then after that, it was a little bit more, you know, a little bit more open about where you could go. But, yeah, I, I remember my, my grandparents and, like, my parents talking about that definitely. I never experienced it on that level. Like, I had light teasing at school. That was it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, yeah, never, never anything to that extent where I was told I couldn't come in you know, to a cafe, or I couldn't be walking down this street, like some of, like, some of my family had experience, so. Mm.
0: What did your family tell you about those experiences?
1: The, the one that always sticks out in my mind was, so I was very privileged to know my great grandmother, um, Charlene. We called her (laughs) Cha-Cha, and, She would tell us about when she was growing up and whenever anyone of any kind of authority, a policeman, the taxman, whoever, her mother would make her make her go hide in the woods. And some people around here had different like either sheds or specific hiding places for children when the authorities would come because it was a known thing they would adopt Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Indian children. From communities like this, and what you can't see in a podcast is that Cheryl put the word "adopt" in air quotes. This wasn't really adoption. White families around here would adopt
1: the child, and there was nothing that the community community could do to take them back. It was it was seen as a um, like a mercy, a thing, a, a good thing to do for the community, but it was kidnapping children. So as a result, a lot of families would you know the practice of you know if if anyone like the census taker someone like that would come they would go hide so I remember my great-grandmother telling me about that and she always was afraid of um police and things like that growing up I think for that reason because there was that instilled fear Mm -hmm. that she could be taken away which she could very well have Mm -hmm. Just, just from just from an archiving perspective one of the most interesting records I think we have is um, from a, a 1900 census of this area and they're listing a family and the census taker has to say family has fleed to the swamp will not give any information. So, and that was relatively common from my understanding. So like literally seeing someone of authority coming and going, Nope, like we're going to go hide until they go.
0: Yeah. Is there anything in your work, since you've been doing all this archiving and historical, gathering of historical information, anything that you found that, like, surprised you, that you didn't expect, that you learned about your tribe and your community?
1: Uh, Yeah, there definitely have been some surprising things. I mean, anything you're comfortable sharing (laughs) <laughs> there, there, there are some things that, uh, I maybe could not legally share, but, um, cause I, I mean, I can, I can probably say, you know, like when, you know, when a community is desperate, you do yeah. desperate things, yeah. you, you go down avenues that aren't technically legal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there may be one or two Robin hoods in the area, okay. you know, like that, yeah. that, that, that's all I can really say about yeah. that. But I mean, the, those those admittedly weren't the things that surprised me because I had known about that growing up and you didn't you didn't talk about it because
0: <laughs> you might remember Cheryl and Joey telling us about how she interviewed Joey's family who immigrated from Palestine. Cheryl and Joey have found some parallels between his family's experience and that of the Porch Creek Indians.
1: That was an interesting interview too, and not to get you know off track too much, but because it was you know his his side of the family had dealt with you know you know being run out of Palestine. Mm-hmm. It was weirdly similar mm-hmm. to interviews I had done with elders here. So it was the the overlap was interesting for that because it's you know it's a traumatic thing and you have to approach it very gently and just try and be respectful about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mr. Paul Bell, who is the Miko or ceremonial chief for the porch talked about racism, too.
2: Because most of our stuff, once they kind of lost, started losing their language because they was more or less ashamed, you know, or somebody, an, another Indian within the town or whatever, or, or this place would say, oh, well, don't be talking that Indian talk. Don't be talking that Indian talk. Wow. And they wouldn't teach your kids because they was ashamed and, And because they knew what the consequences, you know, they didn't want to be called, you know, bad terms, you know. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of ended up fading away. Mm -hmm. And they knew they had to send their kids to school to learn English, so they just started teaching them English Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now these days, you know, we started teaching our kids, you know, the language, but back then, you know, All they was thinking about was, you know, keeping my family safe, you know, and and having a job to be able to feed them. That was their main concern. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd have, like, fiddle parties or whatever, you know, where they'd have, hey, uh, square dances or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, which was against the law. Even this latest, you know, I know the government was saying 1934, something like that. They had a, a big thing up in the government that the Indians wasn't supposed to dance in no time. Mm. They was talking about not just ceremonial dancing, you know, yeah. but fiddle dance, going to you know, the whole down or whatever. Yeah. they supposed to be in the field working, you know. They're supposed to be doing something like that keep them out of trouble. Because if they dance together, then they're going to go to war. Mm -hmm. That's how how the government looked at it. So keep them working all the time or or keep them half-starved to death. Hmm. You know, because we tend to get a stereotype like, oh, all all the Mexicans come across the border stealing, you know, and all that. And, you know, you give them a stereotype or, you know, how they used to— say about different you know, all Irish drunks yeah. when they come in here you know you know and it's basically like that way with every nationality Chinese do this and That's and uh, Italians did this you know mm-hmm. stereotypes but it I, once they I got to learn and being around each other they say what well, you know that that all I'm Irish is not alcoholics you know <laughs>
0: Throughout our visits with The Porch, we have heard about the important role Christian missionaries have played in the tribe's history. Earlier, you were telling me how much Christianity is integrated with traditional ways, or how important Christianity, I guess, is Mm. to your
2: community. Yeah, that's another reason that we didn't, they didn't, they just turned their back on most of their language and uh, stuff like that, because some of them started going to church. But at that time, the circumstance these people were starving to death. I'm talking about my hands. these people were starving to death and uh the churches started coming in I guess I this church across the road and uh, they was and they would have little food uh, things set up you know where a family could go get a little food or whatever, keep them starving to death. And so they'd start going to that church, and the churches started springing up, you know. Uh, even though a lot of them was, you know, might have been Christian to start with, uh, but the churches kind of throughout the community started building. I mean, and you had, like, apostolic, you know, holiness churches, uh, Episcopalians and Baptists, and uh, I don't remember no Methodists right around in this part, but some of the other parts that where Greek families lived, it was Methodist, some of them was Methodist. Uh, but they just kind of adopted, you know, started going to different churches as they wanted to, to go to mm-hmm. and just slowly forgot about, you know, their uh, prayer songs or stomp dance songs or, or whatever, their animal songs, you know, and mainly what they sung, you know. Was what the white people, you know, you just sung Creek hymns, or I mean, uh, sung regular hymns? I mean, they even lost their, you know, they, what Creek hymns they had before then, because huh. they was tired of having to speak English so much so they just learned what American hymns, you know.
0: For Miko Paul, the existence of Creek hymns demonstrates that the Creeks were not heathens or savages, as many settlers called them. Miko Paul told us. That most of the Creek hymns were written on the Trail of Tears when the Creeks were forcibly removed from their homelands. If they were writing Christian hymns then, Miko Paul reasons, they couldn't have been heathens.
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of the Creek hymns, I was thinking, you know, when the Creeks moved, they moved the Creeks to Oklahoma, they was basically still uh, savages. But most of the Creek hymns was wrote they wrote the creek hymns while they was on the trail to tears to Oklahoma Hmm. so um and and, you know and they they talk about Jesus and and all that in the creek hymns and stuff like that so they must not have been too much of heathens or whatever (laughs) you know Right,
0: right.
2: but that's the way most of that their hymn was kind of made from circumstance you know like that when you feel you know when you're feeling bad you can think of if you hunting some relief you know where it's singing or of whatever or praying or whatever comes do you use for your motivation you know to make you feel better that's what they was doing and some of them were singing and so they'd learn them song everybody would sing and uh, it, it, their creek hymns if if you listen at it, you could hear the mixture of Afro-American music from the slave songs. You can hear the Scottish the way they do their standards and stuff like that. Some some Scottish music you listen to that some of the Scottish choirs up north or whatever that you still hear a, a little bit of it, but it's called some kind something, but just the way they sing, it's a almost like we do stomp dance. It's like a stomp dance is more like a more of a slave dance. You know, they sound the way it's built and we don't know, know where the Creeks learned it. The blacks learned it from the Creeks or the Creeks learned it from the blacks, you know, because it's call and answer, mm-hmm. you know, because they're talking about I'm going on, I'm going on, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so, or something like song, uh, I'll fly away, mm-hmm. and then, and then the, and the other one answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like an answer and response. Mm-hmm. And some of the, that's the way the, all the stump dance stuff is, where it's a stump dance or an animal song or whatever. On the hymn songs, it's basically took from what they, uh, uh, the different mixture of stump dance, between stump dance and what the Blacks were Slave songs. And the and the and the songs, the melodies, Scottish melodies, I was hearing.
0: These days, Miko Paul sees a separation between Christianity and traditional Creek practices. He thinks the traditional beliefs have declined.
2: Nowadays, you're a separation, more or less, in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You either see and they go to church, or 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 go to the ground. Mm-hmm. They don't. You don't see it, but when I was first starting there they were still you would dance all night you know then you run home as soon as you was able to get out of the ring where you we were dancing mm-hmm. go home and sometimes you didn't even have time to take a bath Then you'd uh, put on some more you'd put some more clothes on and go right on to church
0: because uh-huh.
2: that'd be Sunday morning because we danced on like on Saturday night uh-huh. Then you would go home, run home, change clothes. If You had time to take a bath. If you didn't. You went on church, and then they'd leave there and go straight to church. And you know they didn't get settled down to when church ended, and that was just whenever back then, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't a separation. But nowadays, they a lot of young people they want you to either be Christian or some or or native or whatever. They're trying to separate it, and uh, the old ones would tell you, you know, there wasn't no separation, It's the same God, you know, you yeah, know, and they they would tell you, you know, we believe that Jesus come to us, you know, to America before the white man ever come, you know. Then that's the old way, but they're trying to corrupt that, and then you know. They say, "Oh, that's a different. That's, y'all. You worship a different God than I am, or something like that." Mm-hmm. You know, and that's on white and Indian side. Mm-hmm.
0: Even though traditional beliefs may have declined, there is a strong commitment among the porch to relearn the Muskogee language, the Creek dances, and other aspects of traditional culture. At the Southeastern Indian Festival in 2023, we heard Gregory McGee teaching schoolchildren how to say thank you in Muskogee.
2: What I want you to do now is turn to your teachers, turn to your educators, turn to your instructors and tell them, Mado. turn to your administrators, Hello. Hello. principals, you should tell them thank you for all that they do for you guys. Your teachers work extremely, extremely hard uh, behind the scenes and in front of you. Uh, your teachers are caring and nurturing to your education.
0: Miko Paul taught a few Muskogee phrases to me.
2: And we've learned a lot by learn, relearning our language because it's a totally different thing. You know, it's like I was telling the kids, we didn't, we didn't have a word for, you know, goodbye. We'd say, Hadum, Jesus, and to see each other later, you know, and, and the, way the old ones would tell us that when we'd say, like, yes, don't go to each other. It wasn't just like it's supposed to be used for how are you? Mm-hmm. you know but when they said it they it, it, it was a different way of saying it. They was really wanting to know how you were.
0: Would you teach me those phrases that you were saying for the see you later mm-hmm. and the the how are you? Would you teach me to say those? Yeah. So see you later how do you how do you say that again?
2: To See you later, is Hadam Chi Ejothli.
0: Hadam?
2: Hadam Chi Ejothli. Chi
0: Ejothli. Yeah. How would you spell it in English? Or is there an English way to spell it?
2: Okay, you would spell it H, U, and then like dumb, like I D U M? Yeah.
0: Uh huh, okay.
2: And then you write chi, and it'd be like C-H-E. Okay. Sometime you'll hear a chi, and sometimes you'll hear a G. Okay. But we're we going to go with chi right now. Okay. <laughs> so chi, he, ja, it'd be uh, like C-H-A. And then Please. Yeah, Yeah, there's a sound... R in our alphabet, it don't sound like R. It's got a flea sound. You have to b- roll your tongue a little flea. bit. The closest flea. word in English to it would be athlete.
0: Athlete. Okay, flea.
2: Yeah, flea.
0: Flea. flea. I'm just going to do a phonetic uh, spelling.
2: Yeah, um, and add a an S on the end of it. Okay. Flea. Flea. Uh-huh. Hadam Uh huh. Uh huh.
0: And yeah. that's see you later. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
2: Or see you again. That's what it means. Hadam means again. Okay. Ours is a verb final language, so it has your, your subject, object, and then your verb when you're writing out something. So you're. Your verbs don't always be on the end.
0: Okay. Okay. I see. So so hadam is again and yeah. and so thilise, Chihi jai, Please,
2: I will see you.
0: I will see you. Yeah. So thlees would be the C.
2: Thlees. We'll see. The chi on it would be uh you. Okay. We use T for you. Mm-hmm. We uh. I'm trying to think of spelling creaking, the the H-E-C, the he would be part of to see. Okay. And at the end of it, when you go to say at least, you're saying I, basically.
0: Oh, okay.
2: So it's almost backwards, I see you again. Okay. It's sort of like a lot of English is, I mean, English is kind of opposite from basically like... Uh, even Russian, you know, or mm-hmm. a lot of the foreign languages, you know, we always tell them English was wrong, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> because when you study another language, and you know, they more or less go by a different format than English, you know.
0: Sure, yes. And the other phrase was a how are you phrase that you were saying?
2: Okay. To write it in, in English, you would, it's like is It'd be like I, I, S, but it's a little bit. If
0: it, like a sort of an H before the S?
2: It's a short E sound, but it'd be spelt with I.
0: Okay. Yes.
2: Stone. 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 Yeah, just like if you're saying a stone or a rock. Stone. stone. Okay. And then go. If. And that, that's how a lot of times we we corrupt it just like we drop the G on it in sure. English.
0: Uh-huh.
2: We'll corrupt it by taking the first off of and we'll just say like, stone go. Stone
0: go. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> stone go.
2: And we use that for how are you? I like it. And but technically it means are you without problems?
0: Oh wow. <laughs> And really, really meaning, really wanting to know.
2: Yeah.
0: One way Miko Paul takes care of his community is by teaching the Muskogee language to children.
2: We didn't put them in a box. If we told one to do it, we told the other, and it wasn't, you know, and we have like commands that we teach them. It's what is called commands, but it's not really commands, it's more action words. Like we have this uh, thing where we'll say, A box. that means everybody sit down. Then we'll say, A subaclops. And that means everybody stand up. And we say, Alright, who gonna win this time? And then we do it again. No. And then we'll keep adding to that, you know? And then we like to say, Oh but not. they not might not be able to say it, but they know exactly what I'm talking about and that means they like dance, you know, any kind of move they wanna make, you know. Huh. Or fly like a bird. You know, or whatever. and That's what the first things that they learn. But they're called commands, and then, you know, as long as they do an activity, kids pick up on it. And I think that's the best way to reach them. You know, a lot of times they want them to ride down. You know, the kid is just getting to where he can use a pair of scissors. You know, but he can pick up on a lot of them and Before you know it, they telling you what color in creek that is, and you know, and you'll you'll teach them kind of colors. But they, they'll pick up on stuff like that. They not they not as as slow as what you think it you know, they are. And as much stuff as I've read when you learn in two language, it makes both sides of your brain act you know, so the kid actually ends up being smarter. You know, it said, you know, no matter what language you're teaching, if you teach your kid two different languages, it opens that kid up, you know, so he can use both sides of his brain. So that's what we're trying to take modern techniques and you know, mm-hmm. and use towards educating our kids or whatever, and teach them you know, that hundred dollars an hour, you know, they they can be a rich CEO or a lawyer, or be whatever they want to be, but that's not that's not the most important thing, you know. You want to keep up with your family, you know, and um, be true to yourself or whatever, you know, not not be a, a, you consider it worldly, whatever. It all goes back to our teaching or whatever.
0: Clearly, the porch are teaching more than language in the Boys and Girls Club. At the same time, what has been lost is vast. The porch are relearning the Muscogee Creek language but many other languages are completely gone.
2: lot of times they'll say, like one of my ancestors, they said he uh, he lost his language. and only speaks Creek because they had moved to that tribal town. Then was another tribal town after the wars took place. And uh, at that tribal town that I'm talking about was Tuskegee, you know, after like the university or whatever. But it's up toward Montgomery. Mm-hmm. But that was their mother tongue. That was considered what all the mothers taught. Kids, is there some sadness about losing some of the traditional songs? Yeah, because there's so much knowledge, just like I was just the simple phrase, like I was telling you, you know, Hadam Cheese Yah, You know, we don't say goodbye, we say, See you again, we see you again, or like we don't say, How you doing? You know, we'd say, It's don't go. Because we want and then uh, that we use it for how are you? But is are uh, you without problems today? Is what what it really means? Huh. Because they really wanting to know about each other. Every time they met each other, they shook hands or whatever. They shook hands and they. Uh, I always I don't know where know where word, it's written or whatever. But I always think that when you're shaking somebody's hand, you you, you know you, you're giving a piece of yourself. You know, mm. that's not anything. That's just what I think. You no, know? <laughs> you know. but I think that's kind of the way they was thinking. You know, or they—I can't think of the song. It's a creek hymn, but it's talking about. For in English, you would say "thank you for giving me this." Mm-hmm. They wouldn't use that term. They would use. Thank you for lending me this. You know, they All didn't right. They didn't think of it as, we're going to give you this, meaning this forever. Right. We're going to lend you my time. I'm going to lend you my time. You know, and just certain things that you never would have picked up on like that if you hadn't been, if you hadn't started learning some of the language, yeah. you know. And ain't no telling how much more that we'll find later on. And that gives you a kind of feel of how they was thinking at the time. They weren't thinking in just general terms, and they was in thinking you know in depth you know when they was talking to each other they was thinking with well, real feelings they wasn't just words coming out of their mouth you know like we tend to do today we you know, we say a lot of words a lot of times don't mean nothing but they was thinking about what they were saying and it was very important to them because they were. You always go back to not offending nobody. They would always say it's better to kill somebody than to offend them hmm. Hmm. because it embarrasses yourself. It embarrasses your tribe and it embarrasses yourself. A long time ago, if I really wanted, like, my boss lady and all of them to just be so mad with me and be about right ready to kill me, if, I'd, if I'd, y'all to come up today and I said, y'all said, yeah, how y'all doing? Uh, and if I'd have been mean, I said I ain't got time to fool with y'all. You know I'm busy, man. Today I, I I just can't do that. Well, they'd have been over there like ah. Oh! It would have just been a you know an insult. You know you not only made yourself look bad, you made them look bad. You know and that, that was just as bad as I might as well have killed y'all. You know. <laughs> okay. I mean that, they just didn't believe like that.
0: Cheryl Thrower has been learning the Muscogee language too. Paul Bell is her teacher. Cheryl's older sister works in the Porch Language Department. When we spoke with Cheryl, we had come from the Southeastern Indian Festival, where we visited the language booth. Do you speak Muskogee yourself?
1: I'm in a class right now. I see you're wearing buttons that my sister made. Oh, did she? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs)
2: Because
1: my... So, I'm in archives. My older sister is in the language department, and my younger sister, Sahoy is in the environmental department. Oh, wow. So it's the we joke the three sisters thing
0: yeah. <laughs> but, uh,
1: yeah i'm I'm currently trying to learn like i I know very little like I can say like thank you, Mado and mm-hmm. you know, just like little things like that, but I'm trying to learn this it's something that this trip in particular has been trying to be better about over the years, making sure the the younger generation is um they're being exposed to it mm-hmm. early on which is great because um, i didn't have that growing up like my my father tried his best to introduce it as much as he could he wasn't a native speaker either mm-hmm. but he would try and teach me things you know like like here's how you say thank you here's how you say dog cat count to a certain point you know and mm-hmm. but it just didn't stick so it makes me really happy that you know, the, the younger generation, and my sister's helping to teach them, you know. Yeah. I'll see, like, you know, a kid from the tribe, and, and they'll be like, like Estang-o? like go and I'll be mm-hmm. like, oh, how are you doing? You know, it makes me happy,
0: you know, like, oh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not disappearing, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Cheryl is even learning to make jokes and puns in Muskogee. Her husband, Joey, didn't want us to leave without hearing about that.
1: Are you ready for a very important question? What's that? What is small bear cat in Muskogee, <laughs> and why is that part of your vernacular? <laughs> oh, we well to explain we have a we have a black cat named Bean, but I'm learning Muskogee, so we're trying to introduce more Muskogee into our everyday <laughs> vernacular. So it's a uh, nokozi gbozi is bear cat, <laughs> nokozi bozi.
0: No, uh, Chico, seen
1: yeah, seen, so you're just making fun now, but <laughs> oh. but yeah, like that's the, the most important question. Yes, yes. 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 <laughs> to bring our cats into it, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you wish you be yeah, asked. <laughs> yeah. So, but but I mean, yeah. But in all seriousness, like just that kind of thing is it's making me so happy that something. Of that cultural native Muscogee coming back to the point where Mm -hmm. I can joke around Mm -hmm. in Muscogee, like I can, I can, I can share that with you guys in that way, you know. You've used some Muscogee puns around the house. I can't remember off the top of my head (laughs) either, but but isn't that great though? That makes me
0: so happy. We're there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
1: We've done it.
0: That, yes yeah. to to joke in muskogee or mm-hmm. to make puns that's a level of sophistication that mm-hmm.
1: yeah i keep being told by elders that um jokes are funnier in muskogee than here <laughs> yeah. so i'm trying to get there uh, because like i know especially some elders in oklahoma like they'll say um a joke or a pun and it's apparently hilarious because all the native speakers are like crying like oh and then over here i'm just like i'm not there yet (laughs) but one day one day i will
0: understand the joke (laughs) this image of cheryl among the elders takes me back to what our student holland andrews noticed at the festival generations were dancing behind one another the younger dancers following and learning from the older ones i think multi-generational
1: Interaction, it's very important mm-hmm. within the tribe and in a lot of Native American tribes. It was just something you did uh for you know traditionally like your your grandparents and your great grandparents lived with you. You know, you 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 all took care of each other and made sure, you know, you had everything that you needed and you know as a result it results in the a very large community at that point. So, and that's how I was raised. Um, my my great-grandmother lived with my grandparents and we were practically raised at my grandmother's house. So we, we always had um, a multi-generational view of things.
0: As we wrapped up our interview with Cheryl Thrower, I asked one last question. What do you want people to know about the Porch Creek Indians?
1: Mm. I think the biggest one is just we're we're still here like I, you know we we hear you hear a lot you know either either you hear oh there are no more Native Americans they were all wiped out or there are no more Native Americans in the southeast because mm-hmm. of the Trail of Tears um, and there are very few of us but we are still here you know like we you know th- through hell or high water somehow like, we, we stayed here. So that's always the biggest thing when, when people ask me that, you know, it's like, well, we're, you know, there is still a native tribe here. And, you know, we were the only federally recognized one, but we're not the only tribe, you know, within the Southeast and in Alabama itself.
0: Do you remember the three sisters? I'm talking this time, not just about Cheryl, Sahoy and Rachel Thrower, but about the companion plants, corn, beans, and squash. It's traditional in many native communities to plant these three crops together because they interconnect and support each other. The cornstalk furnishes a trellis on which the beans can climb. The beans fix nitrogen in the soil and anchor the tall, gangly cornstalk in high winds. The broad leaves of the squash help keep the ground moist and hold weeds at bay. The Porch Creek Indians have a long, powerful, beautiful, sometimes tragic history. They're still here. I'm here in Alabama, too, through my own twists and turns. We were interconnected long before I met them and began to realize it. What I'm learning from them is changing me for the better. Like the cornstalk, the porch have given me a historical structure to climb so I can better understand the present. Like the beans and squash, they have supplied nourishment by showing me the loving and generous way they live in community with one another. Over time, I hope I can be a companion plant to the porch and give back to them as much as they have given. I've used the phrase generational trauma a few times in this series. It's true that the Porch Creek Indians have suffered through the generations, the life of the porch is also a life filled with generational gifts, and the proper response to a gift is to say, Mado, thank you. Mado, Paul Bell. Mado, Cheryl Thrower and Joey Nasser, Mado, Sahoy and Rachel Thrower. Maddo Brandy Chun and your colleagues at the Porch Museum. Mado, Mallory Rowland. Mado to all the Porch Creek Indians whose names I don't know. Meadow to my colleagues, Teresa Davidson and Stephen Potasik, and our students, Holland Andrews, Jake Davenport, and Josh McPherson. Meadow to Scott McGinnis, William McGinnis, Kate McGinnis, and Trey Hurd. And Meadow to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll want to learn more about the Porch Creek Indians. Their excellent website is pcinsn.gov and their YouTube channel is the PBCI Calvin McGee Cultural Center. I've included links to both on the Educator Resources page of my website hereinalabama.com. That's H-E-A-R in I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama.